When George was the uh, minister of the day, for those of you who are not familiar with that concept, is these are lay people who come to the church on occasion, and they minister to people coming off the streets, make phone calls. George, when he made his phone calls, would usually sing a song to people. So uh, he had a very special ministry, so uh, remember to pray for George. Well, if you're like me, you have uh, experienced message overload. Anybody experienced that this morning? I mean, there was so much information to take in that it's just, uh, it's overwhelming. And now I want to get up and I'm going to speak for another 20 minutes or so. Uh, but we're going to ask the Lord to give us a refreshing message that uh, as each minute goes along, that we get strengthened by the message and that it is indeed the ministry of the Spirit. So let's take our Bibles and turn to Luke chapter 2. Luke chapter 2. We're going verse by verse through the book of Luke. And last week we examined the events surrounding the birth of John the Baptist. And this week we're going to examine the events surrounding the birth of Jesus Christ. So let's just hop right in to our text. This is Luke chapter 2 and verse 1. Luke chapter 2. And verse 1. And it came to pass in those days that a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This census took place while Quirinius was governor of Syria. Now immediately we're introduced to two people. The first person is Caesar Augustus, which is not his real name. His real name was Gaius Octavian. Gaius Octavian. He was the grand nephew of Julius Caesar. And Julius Caesar adopted him as his son. When Julius Caesar was assassinated in 44 BC, the Roman Empire was ruled by three men. It was called the Triumvirate. Those three men were this guy right here, Gaius Octavian, Antony, and a general named Lepidus. In time, Lepidus lost his power and it was controlled by two men, Gaius Octavian and Antony. Antony was married to Gaius Octavian's sister, so they were brothers-in-law. But then Antony dumped the sister. And you know what he did? He hooked up with Cleopatra. And that led to a showdown. Anthony, fighting for the control of the empire and defending the honor of his sister, goes to battle against Anthony and defeats him in the Battle of Actium in 27 BC. And in time, he's named the emperor of the entire Roman Empire. And the Senate wants to bestow upon him the title Augustus. As the emperor, he's the new Caesar. Caesar's a title. When you bring it down through history, it becomes Kaiser, like Kaiser Wilhelm. It's just the name for the king or the emperor. So he becomes the new Caesar, and they give him, they add an adjective to his title, and they now call him Augustus Caesar. Ma uh, magnificent Caesar, sublime Caesar, majestic Caesar. He says, oh, I can't take that title. 
I'm just a <laughs> mere human being. And they say, oh, but we want to give it to you. He said, well, you insist. <laughs> and once he became the Augustus Caesar and ruled the empire, he elevated his uncle, Julius Caesar, who is now dead, to a status of God. He deified Julius Caesar. And since Julius Caesar was his father by adoption, he became the son of God. So Augustus Caesar took the title Son of God. So when you read Son of God in your Bible, that Jesus is the Son of God, you need to be thinking in political terms what that means to Augustus Caesar. Because he's Son of God. That means there are going to be two kingdoms clashing. That means that Jesus is get, has a title that Augustus Caesar has. And that, that's just going to spell trouble right from the beginning. So this is Augustus Caesar. He's the emperor of Rome from 27 B.C. up through 14 A.D. So he would have uh, been ruling while Jesus was born and in his uh, childhood. Now it says in verse 2 that he sent out a decree that all, in verse 1, that all the world should be registered, that a census was taken. And the purpose of this registration or census was to determine... Uh, who was out there in the kingdom, and how much money they would be levied as far as taxes were concerned. The whole Roman Empire was based on a system of taxation. There was an elite class of people, about 10% about of the people in the Roman Empire, who just ran the show. They didn't work, but they basically ran the show. Everybody else supported them through their taxes. And the people who supported them were the peasants. Mary and Joseph were peasants. So they have to go to be registered to determine how many taxes they're going to pay. Now, the second man we come across is a guy by the name of Quirinius. It says, so they all went to be registered, everyone to his own, or excuse me, in verse 2, the census was first took place while Quirinius was governing Syria. Same Syria that we have today, which is located north of, uh, of Israel. And this was a northern capital in the whole area of Palestine, and this man, Quirinius, was the governor. And it says the census took place while he was the governor. Now we have a problem. Because Jesus is going to be born during this census. Quirinius was governor of Syria in 6 AD. Jesus was born in 4 BC. So we have about an eight or nine year discrepancy here. And we have to work it out. And there's no easy solution. But there's a possibility because if you look in verse 2, it has the word first, protos. The census first took place while Quirinius was governing Syria. Uh, it could be written in English this way. The census took place while Quirinius was first governing Syria. Now that makes a difference if it reads that way. And in the Greek it can read that way. Let me say it again. The census took place while Quirinius was first governing Syria. The theory is that Quirinius actually governed Syria on two different occasions. He was in office, he went out of office, and he came back into office. The first time he would have governed during the census. 
That would have been 4 BC. Went to governor for a few years. Then he went out of office, and evidently about 6 AD he comes back. So during his first time as an office holder, this census was taken care of. It's like Ben Cameron in our Sunday school class. He's been president twice of the Sunday school class. The only man who's been president twice. He was president once. He was off for several years, and guess what? By popular demand, he was brought back. <laughs> well, the first time Quirinius was governor could have been 4 BC, and that's when the census was taken. So that's, that's an explanation. Now look at verse 3. So, all went to be registered, everyone to his own city, meaning his ancestral home, the home of his ancestors. That was an Egyptian tradition that had been passed down throughout the Roman Empire, and so everyone has to go to the home of their ancestors. Joseph also went up, watch this, from Galilee out of the city of Nazareth into Judea, the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and the lineage of David. So he has to make a trip. Now, actually, he's coming from Galilee, and he's actually going south, and yet this verse says he went up. And that's the reason is because this up is not referring to geographical direction. It's referring to elevation. The city of Bethlehem was 2,700 feet above sea level, and it was higher than Galilee, Nazareth of Galilee. And so, in essence, when he traveled south, guess what direction he was actually going? Up in elevation. And so that's what that phrase up refers to. Now notice where he goes. He goes to Bethlehem. It's called the city of David. This is based on 1 Samuel chapter 20, where it's first called the city of David. It's right outside the city limits that David tends to his sheep. It's here that Ruth gleans in the field of Boaz, and you're familiar with those incidents. Now it says he went up in verse 5 with Mary, his betrothed who was with child. Now, women did not have to go and be registered. They didn't have to travel with their husband. But Mary does. Now, she's great with child. She's nine months pregnant this time. She has a choice. She can stay back home. That wouldn't have been too fun. The scandal already was, the rumor mill was already, you know, in full force, saying, this woman is pregnant. She wasn't even married to Joseph when she was pregnant. That's one choice. Or the other choice is to get on a donkey and go 85 miles south with her betrothed husband, Joseph. And so she chooses the lesser of two evils. Although it may have been the greater of two evils. Have you ever been on a trip? It takes you four days, you've been stuck in a car with your husband? Huh? And you're not in a good mood to begin with, and you're nine months pregnant. So I don't know which would have been a better situation. But anyway, she chooses to go... Uh, she chooses to go with Joseph here uh, down to Bethlehem. Now, we know from Matthew's Gospel, Matthew quotes Micah the prophet, where in Micah 5, 2, it predicts Micah the prophet prophesies that the Messiah will be born in Bethlehem. And so, in reality, even though it says a decree went out from Caesar, it's not Caesar's decree that takes them to Bethlehem. Originally, it's God's decree, and God's decree is being fulfilled. Now look at verse 6. And so it was, while they were there, it seems to indicate a period of time, the days were completed for her to be delivered. And she brought forth 
her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. Most likely Joseph is going to have to deliver the baby in this situation. There's no mention of a midwife, so it's assumed that Joseph actually delivers the baby. And we see three things in verses 6 and 7. First of all, we see that she wrapped him in swaddling clothes. This is ordinary. Everybody wrapped their newborn baby in swaddling clothes, which were simply strips of, of cloth. The quality of the cloth determined your status in life. So they just probably had rags. And you would wrap it around the baby's body like a mummy to keep the arms straight. They believed that your, the child's arms had to be wrapped against its body, or otherwise when it grew up its arms would be crooked. That was a superstition. That's what they believed. That's why they did it. It was normal. Now here's the question I asked yesterday as I was reading this passage. Why would Luke mention something that's ordinary that happened at every birth? Why would he say they wrapped him in swaddling clothes? And my conclusion is because later on in chapter 23, he's going to tell that after Jesus' body is put to death, that Joseph of Arimathea will again wrap him in swaddling clothes like a mummy and lay him in the tomb. So he wants his readers to, uh, when they get to chapter 23, remember back to this point that his life started with swaddling clothes and it ends with, swaddle, with swaddling clothes. In a mummy situation that he couldn't get out of. You wrap that child up, and guess what? He doesn't get out of that. But guess what happens in chapter 24? He's out of those swaddling clothes. And he wants his readers to understand that, that, that his life started that way, and his life ends that way, and all the implications. Now, the second thing we notice, not only does he mention swaddling clothes in verse 7, but he mentions the manger. They laid him in a manger, which is a V-shaped food bin for animals, a food trough for animals. It's diseased. It stinks. It is filthy dirty. And that's the place where he is born. Why is he born and placed in a food trough where animals out of which animals eat. Well, it tells us in verse 7, because at the end of verse 7, there was no room for him in the inn. Putting a baby in a food trough is not ordinary. That's extraordinary. That's weird. But why would you do it? Because he wasn't born in a typical place. The travelers, if you were pregnant and you had your baby while you were traveling, he wasn't born in a typical place. In this case, it would have been an inn. There's no place for him in the inn. Now, what's an inn? Two options. There were two kinds of inns. The first kind of inn was known as a caravassy. A caravassy. That's where caravans stopped. Guys would be driving their animals, or they'd be leading a caravan of travelers, and they would stop at a caravassy. It was a two-floor or two-storied structure. Just like this room, only two stories, had four walls, and in the middle was the courtyard. The travelers would stay in the inn part, on the floor, men on one floor, women on another floor. And they would bring their animals in the middle of the courtyard, and they would 
place the animals there. That's the one kind of inn. A caravassy. The second kind of inn was a cave. And it was a cave that travelers would stop at that was used for the purpose of sleeping. The front part of the cave is where the people slept, and the back part of the cave is where they put their animals up for the night. Now, whether it's the first or whether it's the second, the bottom line is there was no place for them to stay where the people slept. So they had to sleep where the animals slept, either in that courtyard or in the back part of the cave. They had to just make room and move a cow over and move a goat over. And that's where they slept. And while they were there that night, evidently, the baby's born, and guess where you're going to put your baby? In a bassinet? In your bed? You don't have a bed. You put him in the food trough. And so that's why they put Jesus in the food trough. And Luke wants us to realize that uh, this is the humble beginnings that the Messiah, the King of Israel, is going to have. It's not the way people expected it to happen. Now, after he's born, the news spreads. This, that's Christmas Day, verses 1 through 7. Well, we're past Christmas week, and so now we're going to move right past Christmas week, and we're going to come to the next event. Look at verse 8, as the news spreads. Now, there were in that same country, right in the region of Bethlehem, shepherds, watch this, living out in the fields. Well, Mary and Joseph were living in the stable at this time. Here are people living out in the fields. Mary and Joseph were living in animals, with animals. Guess where these people were living? Who they're living with? Animals. And they were keeping watch over their flock by night. So this is basically a night scene. And we have shepherds with their animals, the sheep out in the field. It's nighttime. Most of the shepherds are sleeping. Some are standing guard to protect from thieves and wild animals. And these people are not the most respectable people in the world. We've dealt with shepherds before in this class, but just let me say, these were considered the lowest of the low. These were considered the despised people of the Jewish race. The only thing I can liken it to, as far as reputation is concerned, are the gypsies. That's nothing to say. It's, I'm not making a statement against gypsies. I'm just talking about public opinion. A gypsy is considered a person you wouldn't, wouldn't necessarily do business with. Whether that's true or not, that's the perception. They're often known as thieves, and that's exactly how the shepherds were looked upon by the average person. Now look what it says in verse 9. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood before them. And the glory of the Lord shone around about them, and they were greatly afraid. Suddenly, the ones that are awake are shocked because suddenly there's an angel. Now, we've seen an angel mentioned at least three times in the first chapter or two of Luke's Gospel. Always connected with an announcement of a birth. And this angel is going to be no different. And when the angel stands there, these guys are absolutely shocked. And then it says, the glory of the Lord, in verse 9, shone around about them. 
So there's a supernatural glow that just fills. It's a night scene in a sense. But when this supernatural glow begins, the night scene turns into a day scene. And this, they go, whoa, this is scary. And by this time, I imagine everybody, all the other shepherds have awakened. And it catches these guys off guard. And although they are tough characters, they're terrified of this. They're not expecting it. This is why I often say we read our scriptures and we really don't get the full impact when we see a miracle or we have encounters with angels in here. In every one of those cases, people are just taken back. It absolutely shocks them. This is not; These are not ordinary events, and Luke doesn't want you to see that as an ordinary event. These are tough characters, but guess what? They're shaking in their boots when they meet an angel. Now look at verse 10. <coughs> then the angel said to them, don't be afraid, or stop being afraid. Why? For behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy that shall be to all the people. So they said, don't be afraid. This is a positive visit. I have good news. It is news that will benefit all people. Now the phrase, all the people, in verse 11, or verse uh, 10, I guess it is, will be to all people, literally in the Greek is the people. And it means Jewish people. So I have great news for Jewish people, all the Jewish people, the people of God, in other words. Now, what is that news? Now, here is the news. For there is born to you, which would be to the Jewish people, this day in the city of David, Bethlehem, a Savior who is Christ, meaning Messiah, the Lord. All that the prophets had predicted, all that the Old Testament prophets had spoken of, was going to be fulfilled or had been fulfilled on this day. All those scriptures that were in Isaiah and Michael and all those different passages are being fulfilled right here in this moment of history. Now notice that you have three titles there. Savior, Christ, and Lord. Every one is a political title. Guess who was called Savior? Give you three guesses. First, Caesar. Second, Caesar. And third, Caesar. Which one will you pick? Caesar. Yeah, Caesar. Caesar is called Savior. And guess who's called Lord? Three choices. <laughs> Each one starts with a C and ends with an O. Caesar. Caesar took the titles Savior and Lord. Lord spoke of Caesar being the benefactor of the people. It was Caesar who passed out blessings. It was Caesar who met the people's needs. Caesar's the Savior. What did that mean? What did that political title mean? Well, that meant Caesar was the one who delivered you from your enemies. Caesar was the one who maintained peace and kept peace in the world, the Roman peace. And so here we see these two political titles. Now, it's very interesting that in this passage, it says that the Savior and the Lord who was born, which means there's a new Savior who's born, and there's a new Lord who's born in the Roman Empire, is Christ, or Messiah. That is the person that the Old Testament prophets said was going to come and was going to free the people, the Jewish people, 
uh, from oppression, who would meet all their needs when God established his kingdom. All their needs, he'd be their Lord. All their needs would be met. He would be their savior. He would bring about a universal peace. And this guy is Messiah. That is a royal title, the anointed one. And it was the same title that was given to King David. He was called God's anointed one or God's Messiah. And so that Messiah title means king. And it's God's king, God's supernatural king. Now, by the way, in verse 11, where Jesus is called the Savior, this is the only time in either Matthew, Mark, or Luke where Jesus is called Savior. He's only called Savior once in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. You know that? Sort of a surprise for me. John calls him Savior a lot. But not in the Synoptic Gospels. And so we see that from verse 11 that Jesus is given political titles. And we see that he's the Savior and the salvation he provides has all kinds of political dimensions. Today we miss that. This is why I'm convinced that we read, we read our Bibles as 21st century Christians, not as 1st century Jews or 1st century Romans. If they had read this passage and they saw those titles, they would say, politics, politics, politics. This, does, this isn't good news. This may, may be talking about good news, but that means there's going to be a clash coming. A clash between two saviors, a clash between two lords, a clash between two leaders of an empire. And Jews throughout their history always associated salvation with politics. I mean, even the original promise that God gave to Abraham about salvation dealt with land, didn't it? Going to a promised land where it would flow with milk and honey and God would meet all their needs and provide everything that they needed. And it, the salvation that he promised to the Jews when Moses led them was a deliverance from foreign oppression from under the power of Pharaoh. And it always deals with politics. Because when Messiah comes, guess what? He rules the world. That's politics. And guess what else? What else? The other world rulers, they're dethroned. That's politics. And the Jews didn't believe any of that would happen until there was a resurrection. They ultimately believed that there would be a great resurrection. All God's enemies would be destroyed, all of his people would be raised, and God's Messiah would rule the earth for a thousand years. So they always associated salvation in some way with politics, and what we have to do is somehow get back to that kind of original meaning. Does that mean, doesn't that mean, our, you mean our sins aren't forgiven? Yeah, our sins are forgiven. I'm not talking about that. But what it means is that the whole issue is in heaven. Remember, I dealt with this many times. Heaven's just the intermediary place. It's a place where you go when you die until you're resurrected. That could last one day. It could last a thousand years. I don't know how long we'll be in heaven, but guess what? Then we're resurrected. And then what happens? Roll on earth with Christ. See? Political rule. So there's salvation is all part and parcel of this. And that's what I hope that we can get as we go through this. Now look at verse 12. The angel says to the... <clears throat> Shepherds, and you will find, this will be a sign to you. 
you'll find the babe wrapped in swaddling clothes. Well, that's not a sign, that's ordinary. Here's the sign. Lying in a food trough. Yeah, that's, that, would be, that would be the one right there. He'll be in a, a feed bin. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of heavenly hosts. Suddenly there were a whole bunch of angels, maybe thousands of angels. What were they doing? Praising God. And they were saying, glory to God in the highest. Now watch this very carefully. Glory to God in the highest. And on, and on earth, peace, goodwill toward men. This is the first Christmas carol where the angels begin to sing. And notice it flows upward to God who's in the highest, meaning God who's in the heaven. And then it flows outward across the earth. Peace on earth. Do you see that? So what we have is it reaches the highest heaven. It extends to earth. And on earth, there's peace. There's peace. So what we have here is we have this first song, or Christmas song, is a song of praise. Glory to God in the highest. And not only is it a song of praise, it's a song of promise. And on earth, what? Peace. Peace. Look at this. And on earth, peace, goodwill toward men. Or more literally, on earth, goodwill or peace toward men whom God has favored. The word goodwill means favor. Peace toward those whom God has favored, which is is one of the themes that we've seen in Luke 1 and 2, that God gives his favor, God gives his mercy. Remember that? The peace is promised to those upon whom God has given his favor or his goodwill. Well, what about the others? What about the enemies of God? Well, they don't have peace. They have judgment. And so the promise here is a promise to God's people and those who stand with God's people that they will experience peace. Notice it's a peace that will be on earth. Everything about Jewish thought is that ultimate salvation is on earth during some sort of millennial reign. Now look at verse 15. And so it was, when the angels had gone away from them into heaven, it shows it was more than a vision, he actually go away. It's not like they saw something and it disappears. That the shepherds said one to another, let us go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has come to pass. Notice that. That has come to pass. That, was, in other words, that was prophesied by the Old Testament scriptures. Which the Lord has made known to us. And they came with haste, with urgency. And they found, which seems like as a search was involved, and they found Mary and Joseph and the babe lying in the food bin. So once the angels leave, they say, hey, let's go. Look at that act of faith. Based on a word from God given through angels, they get up and with urgency they go and they're absolutely obedient. That's what faith is. Faith is always an action. It's not just a belief. It's doing something 
obediently. Obedience is the demonstration of faith. So they probably leave their sheep with an assistant, a little shepherd boy, and they go and they find Jesus lying in the manger. Now look at verse 17. Now when they had seen him, or literally having seen him, which means that they probably spent some time with him, and that's what our manger scenes are like. They made widely known the saying which was told to them concerning the child. What saying? Verse 11. Unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Messiah or Christ the Lord. And so they went and they told everybody as they were going back to work. And all those who heard it marveled. And that doesn't mean necessarily say, oh, that's great. It just means they were amazed. Maybe they were amazed because it sounded so outlandish. Messiah is not going to come and be born in a staple. You know, they didn't expect that. We don't know why they were amazed, but they were amazed. The story was fantastic in a sense. <coughs> They were amazed or marveled at those things which were told to them by the shepherds. And so some people probably marveled that the Messiah, that God has fulfilled his prophecy. But others probably said, this is ridiculous. Because after all, who's telling them the story? Yeah, gypsies. <clears throat> shepherds. And so God has entrusted the greatest truth to the ages... To a group of people who are untrustworthy. And the people marveled. And let's say some of them marveled in a positive way. Well, that's fine, but that's not enough. Because look at verse 19 says, But Mary, do you see that? That's a contrast. It's okay to be amazed. That's fine to be amazed for a short period of time. But God requires something more. They told the story, the people were amazed. But Mary, she was more than amazed. See, that's what he's trying to tell you. Amazement's okay. That's the initial reaction that you would expect by some story that all the prophecies have been fulfilled. But Mary, look what she did. With her, it wasn't some transitory thing. She kept all these things and pondered them in her heart. She preserves these things. She treasures these things. In contrast to the others. Oh, that's a great story. And then they forget it. She meditates upon these things. She mauls over these things. She turns these things over in her mind. She tries to understand the significance of these things. Where does she do that? Look. She pondered them or mauled over them in her heart. It was a private thing. Now, it's very interesting. The shepherds are going out and making public announcements, getting people excited. But Mary, what she does is private. She can get on Oprah. Say, I was a virgin. I gave a virgin birth. You know, she didn't write an article for a tabloid or anything like this. She does this, and this is private. So the shepherds spoke, but Mary keeps quiet. It's very interesting. And she ponders these things. And then the shepherds return. That means they returned to work. But they were different. They were glorifying and praising God because of all the things that they had heard and seen. 
as it was told to them. Notice, the things they heard and seen as it was told to them. The things that the angel said happened, did happen. And they saw it, and they heard it, and they were eyewitnesses to it. So they returned to work, but they'll never be the same people. Now, what does Luke want us to get out of this? Let me give you a couple things. Number one, here's what I think Luke's trying to tell us in this chapter, is that when Caesar makes his decree for all the world to be registered, unbeknowingly, he's laying the foundation of a new kingdom. The kingdom of God that will one day clash with his own kingdom, the Roman Empire. He's doing this Unknowingly. This shows you how God works providentially through circumstances. Through people who are even his enemies. The heart of the king is in the hand of the Lord. And so he's laying the foundation for a new kingdom, the kingdom of God. Had he known he was doing that, he had never made the decree. But that's what he's doing. The second thing is that God's Plans for his kingdom are long-range plans. Now notice, Jesus is born here. <clears throat> he doesn't start speaking for another 30 years. Everything remains silent for 30 years. <coughs> Although this is the beginning of the plan, God's plan is a long-range plan. It's not an instantaneous plan. We always want God to do things right now. He wants, we want him to do it our way. But sometimes his plans are long-range plans. And his plan is for Jesus to come along 30 years later and begin to minister and proclaim that the kingdom of God is at hand. We need to be patient. These shepherds saw this, and they knew this was the Messiah who was going to overthrow the Roman Empire and all the kingdoms of the world. I imagine that these, some of these guys may have been old. They said, well, when's something going to happen? When's he going to do something? We have to wait for this kid to grow up? You know? But yes, they were going to have to wait for the kid to grow up. And so God has long-range plans. Okay, number three. The readers who are reading chapter two and reading all the gospel of Luke are reading it on the other side of Christ's death and resurrection. See, this was written probably about 60 AD. Although we're describing some events in verse chapter two that happened in 4 BC. So the readers are reading it 60 years after the fact. They know not only about his birth, they know about his three-year ministry, they know about his death when Rome said, Ah, oh, we're done with him, we got rid of him. And they know about his resurrection. And they know that he's alive and he's reigning as king and God's placed him on his throne. They know that because the guy who wrote Luke also wrote the book of Acts, where he ascends into heaven, and he's sitting at God's right hand. They know all of that thing, all these things, and the plans that they thought that God had, that they thought they understood about the kingdom of God didn't happen the way they thought it would happen. Even when he grew up, he didn't overthrow Rome the way they thought. In fact, Rome overthrew him. They put him on a cross as a common criminal said, we're finished with him. But then God raised him from the dead. And when that happened, all those Old Testament prophecies, one day there's going to be a resurrection. And when the resurrection comes, there's going to be a kingdom. 
But guess what? He only raised one person. He didn't raise all the Jewish people up like they thought. Again, there's that long-range plan, but guess what? He raised one. Amen. And a new society, a new humanity, a new kingdom had already been born, had already started with the resurrection of the first person. And if there's a first resurrection, there'll be other resurrections. And so all these people realize that God's kingdom was not coming the way they anticipated. But it had already started. And now, until that great general resurrection, they had a job to pledge their allegiance to King Jesus, who ruled God's kingdom. And they became part of it, and they pledged their allegiance to him. And in doing so, that would affect the way they would live every single day of their life on earth. So God ultimately brought about a millennial reign. So these people were reading it 60 years later, and they understand all that's happened. We're reading it 2,000 years later. And we still don't understand it. Because we're reading it through 21st century eyes. Instead of 1st century eyes. Once we start reading it through 1st century eyes, then we'll start understanding that God's plans are greater than ours. The kingdom has already started. It hasn't concluded. It hasn't been consummated. But he's already inaugurated. His, the kingdom has already been inaugurated. And the king has already taken the throne. And one day, every even though he has rulers, even though there are rulers in the world today, they've already been defeated. They can't kill him again. His resurrection proved that he had the last word, not them. And he will have the last word, and they'll set up his kingdom on earth. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this passage of Scripture and what it means to us. Help us to, uh, to read Scripture uh, the way the original audience read it. Help us to think what this means for the earth right now in which we live. And what this means about our allegiance to you and our responsibilities in going out and calling other people to pledge their allegiance to Jesus Christ as king and ruler of the universe. Help us also, Lord, to think of our, especially in light of this uh, presidential campaign, help us to, uh, to think of this kingdom message in light of that and how no matter who rules, no matter how good they are, no matter how bad they are, they'll never solve the world's problems. And our ultimate allegiance cannot go to them. Our ultimate allegiance must go to the one who is the eternal king, and his kingdom there is no end. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen.